0: Hey, good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to join with you today in week five of our six-week series in First Corinthians. Before we get to that, excuse me. I want to right there next to Eileen. I get the timing award this morning. It was great timing. Um, Nick was up here a little bit earlier, and he pointed your attention to these Attender Update cards. I don't know how much action those got when he talked about them, uh, but I'm on staff here. I've been here for four and a half years. I filled it out. Uh, I'm going to hand it in. I'm going to ask every single one of you age 12 and older to please do that very same thing. Just go ahead and take a minute, fill that thing out. This really, really helps us. We're not gonna fool ourselves into thinking that COVID hasn't changed things. It definitely has. And one of the things that has changed is who's here in the room. And if you're here, we want to get to know you. We want to take care of you. And if you would do this for us, we did it last week. We're gonna do it right now. Uh, We're gonna do it next week. And we're going to do it the week after that. So just a warning. We're going to do it all, uh, all four Sundays in the month of March. And you would really be doing us a big favor. Just fill that out. Pick up that bucket if you're on this end. Put your card in it. Pass it on down. Set the buckets down right there. We really, really appreciate it. I get it's inconvenient. It's not wonderful. Um, but we're all going to experience that together. And I just thank you in advance for doing that. All right. We're getting into 1 Corinthians. And we've talked over the last four weeks um, about basically one thing. Unity. Church unity. If you have been in the book of 1 Corinthians before, you will know, uh, and if you have not been in the book of 1 Corinthians before, you will find out that there's a bunch of crazy, messed up things happening in this church. It is a church not unlike ours, a group of uh, followers of Jesus gathered together for corporate worship. They're living counterculturally where they are. And, uh, and Paul is writing, Paul, one of uh, the apostles of Jesus Christ, is writing to help straighten them out a little bit. We talked about the fact that as Paul wrote letters to churches, many of which he started, he had great things to say about them and things to thank them for. He does not have any such things to say about this church, okay? He's really calling them to account. And so though they had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and all were sort of on a level playing field there, they weren't getting it right. And before we look today at them and say, how could they? We just need to go ahead and put ourselves right in their spot. Because whether or not it's the same exact issue, we are more like them than unlike them. So we need to come into this eyes wide open, ready to look inside. So from different angles through the first four chapters, Paul's basically been saying one thing. Be unified. Be unified. And you might be sitting here this morning or watching online saying, I don't even know the people I'm attending here with. How am I supposed to be unified? Uh, We will get to that. But he's going to switch gears here now in chapter 5 and start to get into some of the messed up, crazier issues that are happening in the church. And that brings me to say this. Uh, Some passages in the Bible... Um, are challenging because they're hard to understand. Okay, there are just some things that are hard to understand in the Bible. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna fake that. There are other passages in the Bible that are challenging because they're difficult to apply. Okay, easy to understand maybe, but very difficult to apply. The one we're going to be in today is very easy to understand, but very difficult to apply. Okay, so the problem That Paul addresses in chapter 5 is about how this church is responding to sin, specifically sexual sin. Okay, so I'm just going to do my best to approach this discreetly, Uh, but the Bible talks about sex and sexual issues with great clarity, and I'm going to attempt to represent that best that I can for all of us today. The conversation about sex has been so messed up in every culture, Um, And especially in churches, in fact, in many churches for a long period of time, it's taboo to even bring up the subject of sex. You just don't talk about it. But God, in the inspiration of Scripture, seemed to have the writers write about sex fairly often. So we're going to address it with as much clarity as we possibly can. It's our job as preachers to present you the Word of God, do our best to interpret its meaning, and help us all to apply it to our lives. So, With that said, that's what we're going to do today. Um, Not very difficult to understand, but I think it'll have major implications for all of our lives today. So this week and next week are both passages of Scripture that you will not often hear sermons preached from. Okay, so they're going to be super important that you just lock in today and then back next week uh, to cover these passages of Scripture. But here's, here's three things you need, you need to know about this week and next week. So I'm going to set Bob up a little bit for next week by saying these things. Uh, these verses are very clear in what they say. All right, Other passages of Scripture, as we said, that are unclear, these are very, very clear in what they say. We don't have to do much digging to figure out what Paul is trying to get to in this passage. Secondly, these verses are also virtually ignored. I don't know how many passages or how many sermons you will have heard in your life after today Uh, coming from the passage that we're going to study together this morning. Um, We might get through this and you say, I didn't even know that was in there. It's been in there your whole life. Um, And we're just going to hope to uncover it today. The third thing is that this topic, this message, will likely create some discomfort for you. Either because of the subject matter or because of the necessary application that we're all going to have to make once we come through the Word of God, because we're approaching the Word of God, and we never want to walk away saying, huh, I didn't know that. If that's the only thing we say, we've missed it. We want to walk away knowing what we're going to do. So when it comes to challenging passages of Scripture, there are two questions that you and I have got to deal with. The first one is this. What does the Bible say? What does it say? We just want to know what God is communicating to us through what he had Written. That's a question we need to ask. The second one is this. Will we follow it? That's really it. When you come to challenging passages of Scripture, you need to ask yourself, what does it say, and am I going to follow it once I figure out what it says? Now, there's a couple reasons this chapter is, uh, might just come up against what you have um, come to believe about the Bible, about following after Jesus, um, what we're going to talk about in this passage may have been improperly used by a church leader in the past. You might have seen what we're going to talk about done really poorly. And uh, you may have seen it, you may have experienced it. My heart breaks for you. Can we just all admit some things in the Bible are just hard to do? And then figuring out how to do those hard things is also complicated, but God has given us sufficient information for us to know what we need to do. So maybe you have a wound or a scar from a church in the past. I'm sorry, but I think we all might. And I don't want to minimize your pain or your experience at all. What I, what I hope is that this teaching today speaks to it and helps you heal a little bit. Uh, another reason this might come up against your beliefs is you might not think of sin as that big of a deal. If you think of yourself generally as a mistaker, you know, a good person who occasionally does bad things then today might not mean much for you. But if you have come to believe that your sin is a big deal and that it has broken your relationship with God and damaged your relationships with other people, uh, you may want to lean in to this because this passage is for those of us who believe that we are sinners and stand before God in need. And then the third reason this might rub up against you the wrong way is because we have an American culture that says, leave my business to me. And you mind your own. So yeah, you probably have figured it out. We're going to talk a little bit about getting into each other's business. Um, And not because we love it. Not because it's fun and it feels good. There are some things that as a preacher, I wish I didn't have to preach on. I wish Jesus would not have said it. Today might be one of those. Because when I obey it, it just makes things uncomfortable. But there's a, a result, a beautiful result, a hopeful result, a wonderful result that's attached to it that if you and I would just follow it, we would see. But the problem is we often just chicken out before we even begin or we bail once we've started. We can't afford to do either one of those things today. Now, with that said, let's get into the text and see what the problem was in this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible with you or a device, now is the time to navigate to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, if you're new to the Bible, as we all once were, just ask the person next to you, how do you get there? There's no shame in that. We're also going to provide it on the screen as a, uh, just a little release for you. Verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. So let's just put on the brakes right there and figure out what he just said. Maybe you want to read it again to try to compute what he's saying. Paul's getting a report that there's a man in the church who claims to be a follower of Jesus who's having an inappropriate sexual relationship with his father's wife. Now that's a funny way of saying it because at first it might seem like it's his mom, but because of the language Paul uses, it's likely his stepmom. In either case, no. No. And Paul is not saying anything surprising here. He says in verse 2, this is a kind of behavior that even pagans." now we don't use the word pagan in our culture often, it just in Paul's day meant someone who was not a follower of Jesus. People who don't follow Jesus have no religion, no faith, no moral compass, no objective truth. They don't even tolerate this stuff. But this church is letting it go. And Paul wasn't shocked that there was sin so much. He was shocked that there was sin in the church worse than among people who had nothing to do with God or the church. He's even more shocked that they were boasting about it. Look at verse 2. You are proud. There's something that they're doing in response to this sin that is uncalled for. And we're going to see that Paul goes after the people in the church. And he does talk about this man, but he's going to drill down on the rest of them. That means we're all on the hook. All right, this is us. This church was boasting about their tolerance. This guy's sin was a problem for sure, but it wasn't the only problem And Paul doesn't spend the bulk of his time talking about that problem. He talks about their response to this problem. And that brings us to the first truth this morning. If you're taking notes in the app or writing stuff down want to remember it, here it is. Struggling with sin isn't the problem, but defending sin is the problem. Defending it is the problem. We all struggle with sin. We all do. It's a reality for every single person. It's kind of understood. In fact, it's it's very understood. Look at first John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Here's what it says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. John is calling the church that he's writing to, hey, just play it straight, guys. You're all sinners. Okay, let's just take a deep breath. Everyone just admit, I'm a sinner. In fact, why don't we try it? On the count of three, everyone just say, I'm a sinner. One, two, three. I'm I'm a sinner. sinner. Thank you. And online, I'm sure we heard you. All right? Yeah, we are. Doesn't mean it's okay. And it doesn't mean we wear it as a badge of honor. It means Jesus has made provision for our sin. He's already dealt with it. Jesus came to die for our sin so that we wouldn't have to live as slaves to it. And this church, beyond letting this man live in this ongoing relationship, is actually defending him. They're sticking up for this guy. And so the problem isn't so much our sin. That is a problem. Jesus died for it. I don't want to minimize that. What I want to talk about, though, is our response to our sin. When we defend it, when we excuse it, when we make it less than what it actually is, that is a problem. When we do it for our own sin, it's a problem. When we do it for the sin of others, it's equally a problem. This church was not only ignoring the commands of Scripture around sexuality because they didn't want to rock the boat or because they thought their tolerance was a virtue, uh, but they were going one step further and celebrating what God had said is clearly forbidden. What a dangerous spot to be in. At the end of verse 2, Paul says they should have kicked this guy out of the church for this kind of behavior. Again, not just because he did it. God can forgive that, and the rest of them should as well. But because this was an ongoing thing, he was obviously not repentant for this sin. In this whole series, we've been talking about unity, unity, unity. But Paul gives us two instances um, in which we are clearly to divide all right? Here they are. One, we divide over doctrine. We divide over doctrine when it comes to the essentials of the faith. The fact that we serve a holy God who eternally exists in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who created all of us, who violated his commands and have become sinners. And God, in his love for us, sent Jesus to pay the full price for my sin and yours, that if we would believe, trust in him, that he made payment for our sin, we could have a renewed relationship with God. We divide when we diverge from that. We divide over doctrine, the essentials of the faith. But we also divide over clear commands. We divide when someone who claims to follow Jesus says, I know what the Bible says, but we divide there as well. And Paul is saying, hello, you have such a case. Right now, I know what the Bible says, but but I don't want to I can't stress this enough. we don't divide over someone trying to do the right thing and failing. OK? That's all of us, to one degree or another. Uh, but we're dividing over people who would just refuse. And they're not struggling with sin, honestly. they're not struggling. They're surrendering to it. There is a difference between struggle. Struggle means you're fighting against it. Surrendering means, boy, you're just giving yourself to it. We're talking about a struggle. Paul says to kick him out of the church. Now, I think this has a different cultural implication for them. Um, It does for us than it did for them. Churches were a little bit different, especially in this context. They were meeting house by house, generally smaller groups, sometimes a little bit bigger But everyone in this guy's circle of relationship, everyone who attended his church would have been in his circle of relationships. And Paul is saying, get this guy out of there. Don't treat him like everything's okay. It's not okay. And let me tell you, this guy would have felt that because the early church, boy, they they were sharing everything. They had all things in common. No one went without a need being met by each other. If you're in a Bridgewater small group, your group might be operating this way. Firewood. Shoveling out your driveway, helping pick up your house, building a ramp on your porch, helping a a, a financial need when it's time for that to be met and you just can't pull it off. Groups functioning well will be providing these types of counsel for each other. Let me tell you, this guy would have felt it. And you might think here today, boy, I I came, no one even knows I'm here, and I will leave probably during the last song, and no, no one will even know that I went. This was not the case here. Everyone in this guy's circle of relationships would have known things are not okay. And we're not gonna treat him like everything is okay. Let's keep reading verse three. He says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the name of the one who has been doing this. Paul says, I've already passed judgment on this guy. And it's not just Paul's opinion. He is passing judgment in the name of Jesus, on behalf of Jesus. And here's where you're probably thinking, wait, 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 wait. He's passing judgment on him? I thought church was a judgment-free zone. I thought we aren't in the business of judging here. What are we doing? Put on, put on the brakes. I can, I, can, I can understand the sin that he's involved in here, but now you're talking about judging. And Paul says he's going first. He's already judged this guy. What is going on? Doesn't Matthew 7, 1 say, do not judge or you too will be judged? You've probably, if if you've tried to help someone along in their relationship with Jesus, you've had that one thrown right back in your face. Oh, don't you judge me. Oh, yeah, we love that one. See, we love the commands when they help us, when we think they help us. We love to use them when they work to our advantage, but we don't really like the commands of God when they don't feel as good. I get it. I do. But it's not okay. Even people who don't love the Bible love that verse. But, but you have to read what Jesus says in full context because in the next verse, he talks about how they are to make judgments. He says, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It doesn't say leave the speck. It just says deal with your own stuff first. Humble yourself. Recognize that you are also a sinner. So you're not coming down from on high. You're coming alongside as a brother, as a sister. Purify your heart I mean, he goes on even in verse 6 of Matthew 7 to say, don't give to dogs that which is sacred. How are they supposed to know? Basically, don't waste your time with people who are not going to pay attention to you. Well, how would they know that if they hadn't made a judgment? You see, we do. We need to. We have to. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. We make judgments about things all the time, about all kinds of things. Our justice system requires it. When there's a jury, they listen to the case, they deliberate, and they make a judgment. What the Bible is saying is we can't judge motives, but we have to judge behaviors. We have to judge behaviors. I don't get to decide what your motive is for why you're doing what you're doing, but I do get to look at your behavior and address that and ask Questions again from a place of humility, from a place of love. Let me try to bring this home for you. Um, Suppose, let's just pretend, even if you don't, that you have a 12 year old son and you are home this afternoon and there's a guy in his mid 30s comes to your door and he's got some uh, bag of dope in his hand. He's got a joint hanging out of his mouth and he says, Hey, I'm here to pick up your son. We're going to go to the park. What's your response? let me get them, right? No, you wouldn't, why not? You made a judgment and you know you should have and you're wise to do it. Or maybe you're a dad who has daughters in the dating age, whatever that is, 45 maybe. I'm a little salty on that one. I'm making judgments all the time. I got a young man who wants to come and talk to any of my daughters. I am making judgments. Doesn't mean I knock the kid out, necessarily. (laughs) But I'm observing, and I'm wise to do it. And so are you. I can't see his heart, but I can certainly see what I've been given to see, and that is his behavior. The Bible makes warnings against superficial judgments on motives, but we are certainly to judge behaviors, all right? So that's a far stretch from being a judgmental person. Can we just say that? We'll talk more about that later. Here's what Paul says to do with this guy, verse four. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Okay, this is not as complicated as it might sound. It's not like we're putting on robes, turning down the lights, and having some dark ceremony to hand this man over to Satan. Basically, this guy is is choosing his own way. He's making his own path, and Paul's saying, you know what? Let the guy go. He's not in your fellowship. He is not, everything is not okay between your church, his circle of relationships, and him. So, Let him have it. He wants it. Let him have it. This is not unlike God's response in Romans chapter 1 to people who have rejected the truth about God. God turns them over to the way they want to go and lets them experience all that they will experience by choosing a destructive path. That's what Paul is saying. Let him go. Let him go. Why? Why? Well, there's a point here. And I want to point you to another passage of Scripture just to strengthen what's happening here. We're going to go to Jesus' words, Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Look there on the screen. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan. There's that word again or a tax collector Jesus says eventually these people in the church in an ongoing sinful pattern treat them as you would a tax collector or a pagan how do we treat those people well certainly they don't belong in terms of they're not in fellowship here but how do we treat people who don't belong here yet are they not our mission isn't that why we have invite cards Isn't that the point? How did Jesus treat tax collectors? Was he he not accused of spending time with tax collectors and sinners? Didn't Jesus come to seek and save that which was lost? See, here's where this might, might have gone sideways for you. Maybe you were put out of a church or you saw someone be put out of a church and it was like, don't talk to them, don't listen to them, don't do anything with them, keep them away. That's not what he's saying. It's not what Jesus said. It's not what Jesus did. It's not what Paul's instructing them to do. I mean, look back at verse 5. Look at what he says in verse 5 in 1 Corinthians. So that, do this so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There is hope. There is a return woven right into the instructions that Paul's giving. That this guy would actually come back in to fellowship. Which brings us to our second point today. The second truth. The purpose of church discipline is restoration, not punishment. It's restoration, not punishment. It doesn't mean we don't do or demand hard things for the people who are choosing a sinful lifestyle. But we do it so that they will be wooed back, drawn back into fellowship with the rest of God's people. Pain now. Restoration later. That's the point. That's what he's trying to do. This man would have, should have said to himself, what am I doing? I have burned my bridges. I've destroyed my relationships. For what? Why? How is my life now better than it was before? It's not. Come back into fellowship. That is the point. I think those of us, let me just talk a minute to those of you who have been around uh, the track a few times when it comes to church. Church. Church discipline, you're thinking about this big thing where we make an announcement about someone. Church discipline, it goes back to Matthew 18 where we just read, where it's it's me and you. I sinned and you're you're letting me know that I sinned and I need to make that right. Boom, there it is. It it should be happening all the time. If that happened all the time, as faithfully as we would do it, it would be so rare that we would get to the place where we'd have to remove someone from fellowship. Paul was saying to these people, "You, you guys missed it, you've whiffed. I mean, you got strikes coming in there. You're not even swinging. You're just letting the ball go. You're not even trying. You're letting this guy go, and you think it's loving. It's not. So here's what it seems that Paul's getting at in this first section. A God-honoring church can't have Christians living however they want and pretend like everything's okay. Cannot do it. We can't. Do it. It will not be okay. And confronting someone in their sin is one of the most uncomfortable things to do if you're humble. If you're someone who's like, ooh, I just can't wait, you probably should just back right out. Just don't. Just don't. That's not what Paul's driving at. That should be what we're aiming at. Let me tell you, if you do decide to come alongside and confront someone in their sin, here's some words that are going to be thrown right at you. Intolerant. There might not be any greater cultural sin today than being intolerant. Bigoted. You'll be thrown that label too. You're intolerant. You're bigoted. You'll get that one. Now, now maybe you're sitting here thinking, what in the world that I walk into. Someone handed me an invite, told me that Bridgewater was a loving church. (laughs) What's going on here? Uh, Maybe you were wondering whether or not to sign off online. Hang with me. Hang with me. Um, Helping someone come back from falling off the ledge is the loving thing to do even if the process getting them off the ledge is painful. We've got to do it. We've got to do it. That's the third truth we need to get at today. It is never loving to overlook a Christian's self-destructive behavior. It feels like it is. It feels like it's loving. That's actually you're not feeling love there. What you're feeling is comfort. It's more comfortable to let someone go. A fellow Christian go in their self-destructive behavior. It would be unkind to let a brother or sister in Jesus Christ pursue their sinful lifestyle. Here's, Here's what James says when he's writing. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Uh, James is saying, you guys got to do this. You got to do it. For the Christian, loving intervention is always the right thing to do. It's just one of the most uncomfortable. It's hard, it's painful, and it's right. And contrary to public opinion, love draws lines. It does draw the line somewhere. But if it gets to the point where even after loving intervention, they will not repent. We're told to not let them remain in good standing. Doesn't mean we don't want them to attend. It just means we don't treat them like everything is okay. Let's keep going in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He uses imagery that they would have been very familiar with, we're just not as familiar. He's talking about leaven, and leaven in many cases is referring to sin, and when you put a little bit of leaven, which is yeast, into a batch of dough, boy, it just makes the whole thing. It it changes everything. I'm not a baker, but I get it. Because science. That's why. All right? I just, that's what it does. It ruins everything. And this leaven, this sin, this yeast that this guy was doing was going to cause disunity. And what Paul is saying is it's not the confrontation uh, of, of his sin that's going to cause disunity. It's allowing him to go um, full on in his sin. Because it seems counterintuitive. If I talk about it, it's going to create disunity. We're supposed to be pursuing unity. Paul said, if you let him go, it will sow disunity. Get after him, and that will actually bring about the unity that you need to have. Counterintuitive. The thing that most risks unity is sin, not confrontation. So as Paul continues, it's obvious he needs to clear something up for them, make a distinction. Um, and I think that this will be helpful for us, too. Let's keep going, verses 9, 10, and 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. They're thinking, yeah, we know a bunch of those. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedier swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy. An idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler do not even eat with such people. This church had gotten this messed up a little bit. They're talking about avoiding all the immoral people in the world. Paul's saying, I'm not talking about avoiding those people. I'm talking about the immoral people among you. How could we possibly separate? You'd have to be a monk and, and then the monks created their own isolated world of sin, even behind their walls. Paul Paul's saying, We're not looking outside the church with judgment. God will take care of those people. You need to judge the people inside the church. That's what you're doing. He lists off a bunch of sins, not sins that belong to non-Christians, but sins that belong to people who claim to be followers of Jesus and are still committing them. We are to distance ourselves from those who claim to follow Jesus, but don't actually follow him. And now, okay, you're like, all right, I get that. And that seems very clear until you get to small group this week. And then you've got someone in your small group and you recognize that they may be in this spot and you're like, oh, shoot. And that's when we get pretty okay with deciding that the Bible's actually saying something else. It doesn't actually say what it looks like it says. It's, no, I can let this one go. He says, don't even eat with such people. Again, culturally different for them. Don't treat them like everything's okay. Be with them, love them, pray for them, talk to them, but not as though everything is fine. It's clearly not fine. And he concludes this chapter with this, verses 12 and 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. Paul ends again by saying that God will judge non-Christians unless they throw themselves on his grace. But the church ought to be handling the business in their midst. And I would hate for us to get to the end of this difficult conversation and miss the point. I don't want us to miss the point. So let me give you four guardrails that I think will help. Here's the first one. Too many churches ignore the blatant sin of Christians. Too many churches ignore the blatant sin of the Christians that are in them. We cannot afford to do that. Second one, too many Christians ignore the blatant sin of other Christians. We can't do that either. If you know someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus and they are living actively in disobedience, you need to lovingly, humbly step in. Number three, too many Christians think it's our job to avoid non-Christians. Please, oh please. Please, oh please, don't miss this one. We are not to shelter ourselves. We are to infiltrate the world with the hope of the message of Jesus Christ. That is what we're here for. We don't cluster ourselves and build thick walls around us. We get out into the community. And we just do the very best we can showing people what it means to be loved by God. To live as one who's had their sin forgiven. How is anyone going to know unless we tell them? So get out there and do that. Last one. Too many Christians judge non-Christians by Christian standards. Just want to beat on this one just for a minute. Um, It is not your job to help someone who's not a follower of Jesus follow your moral code or even the moral code of the Bible. It's not your job to change the music on their radio station. It's not, their, it's not your job to tell them not to talk that way around you. We don't want to convince people who don't follow God that in order to follow God, they have to do some moralistic hoop jumping. Like God like has like removed all the bottom rungs from the ladder, and you've got to get up to this one right here. You've got to quit doing all no. Jesus came to save sinners. Why don't we just say, "Hey, God's made a huge difference in my life. I- I'd love to help you understand that. Let people, let people belong, feel like they belong. The longer they belong, the more likely it is that they'll believe. And once they believe well, you know what follows after that, then they behave. In that order, we don't want to tell people they have to behave in order to have a relationship with God. Let God change their heart. So now, this whole message in this chapter that Paul's writing was to the church. It was to followers of Jesus. But if you are here today, and you are not a follower of Jesus, you are here at church, with the church, but not a part of the church, um, we're just desperate for you to see a culture of messed up people that God has saved, enabled us to live a new way of life, given us a capacity to follow him and to even be pleasing to him, we get it wrong. We all do. And when we're looking into the word of God so that we can get it right. You do not have to behave or clean yourself up to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You just have to come. You let God deal with the other stuff. It is Jesus' perfection, not ours, that makes heaven possible for us. Choosing to live in obedience to Jesus and quickly repenting when we fail is best for us and most glorifying to God. It's just really hard to do. And it's also difficult to come alongside someone else in their sin. But if we understand, if we can begin to grasp how destructive sin is, we might begin to understand how amazing the grace of God is too. That would be a win. That would be a win for us. That would be a win for our families, our community. Let's ask God to do that. Would you pray with me? God, we yeah, we are not unlike this church. Um, we get it wrong. And I want to praise you. I want to thank you that though we get it wrong over and again, Jesus got it right. And he took all of our sin and he took all of our mess and he took care of it. He offered us his forgiveness. He didn't require us to do anything in order to be restored to relationship with you except fall dead weight on your goodness and grace with our sin believing that Jesus has made provision for all of it. Would you help us today to wrap our minds around the destructiveness of our sin, of sin in our church, but also the great hope that comes from following your commands as it pertains to our sin. For that, we're gonna need your help. So we're asking for it this morning in Jesus' name, amen.